0: Welcome once again to the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sroka. On this podcast, we discuss articles written in the Journal of Adolescent and Adult Literacy and its implications for teachers and researchers. It's my hope that this podcast brings out the important work being done by literacy scholars and makes it more known by more people in order that we can take some of these ideas within literacy research uh, and apply it to our various roles and become a little bit better in those roles that we serve. So with that aim, I encourage everyone to uh, obviously listen to the podcast and share it with the colleagues and your students, supervisors, and anyone else who might be interested. I also encourage you to rate and review the show on whatever podcast platform you choose to listen to the show on. All right, good show for you today. Uh, we're discussing an article called Exploring the Connections Between Disciplinary and Digital Literacies in History, the article is written by Melanie Leslie, Elizabeth Stewart, and Johanna Keen. As always, this article can be found in the show notes and is free to read. So if you enjoyed this conversation, I strongly encourage you to go to the show notes, click on the article, and actually read the article. So today we're talking about disciplinary literacy. Uh, that is this idea that we should not be employing kind of generic reading strategies across disciplines, but that we should kind of read, write, and think, and use strategies that apply to these specific disciplines that we teach. That's a very rudimentary definition. I'm sure our, our guests will be able to give you a much better de- de- definition than that, but that's, that's the basic idea. So what happens when kind of disciplined ways of reading, writing, and thinking meet digital literacies, right? What does that look like? The researchers approach the article with this specific question in mind, How do teachers and students navigate digital literacies to access disciplinary knowledge in the field of history? The results of their study, for me, were at first very surprising. But at the same time, I'm not sure I can recall the last time I read an article that was so relatable to what I experienced in the classroom to describe what's kind of really happening in some of these classrooms that were trying to employ some of these theories and strategies uh, into practice. All right. So today I'm joined by two authors of the article, Ms. Johanna Keane and Dr. Melanie Leslie. Johanna Keane is a doctoral student at Texas Tech University. She previously taught and was a literacy coach. Her research interests lie at the intersection of literacy, teacher development, and play. Currently, she is a lecturer in the Teacher Education Department at Texas Tech University. Dr. Melanie Leslie is a professor in the language diversity and literacy studies program in the College of Education at Texas Tech University. She has previously worked as a high school English teacher and served as director for a developmental reading program. Dr. Leslie has earned several teaching awards at secondary and the university level, is a fellow of the National Writing Project and recently received the Community Engagement Scholarship Award for exemplary projects from the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities. Throughout her scholarship and teaching, Dr. Leslie has been committed to fostering uh, Agenic identities and literacy skills for historically marginalized adolescent and adult learners. A significant part of this work is focused on our disciplinary literacies and its role in advancing academic opportunities for underrepresented populations of students. Dr. Leslie is also pursuing a line of inquiry around pairing engaged scholarship with literacy reform in the K through 12 settings. All right, and a little caveat before we jump into it. This is we go a bit long in this episode. We go a bit long, but because it's such a good discussion. And I, I hope you all enjoy this conversation half as much as I did. I'm excited now to be joined in the Journal of Adolescent Dot Literacy podcast by Ms. Johanna Keen and Dr. Melanie Leslie. Thank you both for joining us. I'm excited to talk about your article, Exploring the Connections Between Disciplinary and Digital Literacies in History. Um, Johanna, can we start with you um, and talk a little bit about kind of who you are and how you got interested in this work?
1: Yeah, so I am a doctoral student. And so I taught for um, over a decade before going back and pursuing my doctoral work. And so um, a large part of why I'm interested in this work is just from a practitioner, a former practitioner's standpoint of um, how do all of these concepts actually work in a classroom? And sort of, you know, trying to bridge the gap between a classroom and um, and our research. So that's where I'm coming from.
0: Yeah. And we'll get into it. But I love it so much because often in class, we talk about how things should be and theories of things. But your article very much is happening in in a real classroom. And and the implications of that is, I think, really important. So, yeah, I appreciate this work. Uh, Melanie, can you talk a little bit about how you got interested in this work?
2: Yes, I've been interested in content area and disciplinary literacies for many years. At this point, as a researcher, I'm a former high school English teacher, and so I've had a lot of experience working with adolescents. And then as I became a literacy researcher in my career, I also studied different adolescent literacies in different contexts. And of course, content area and disciplinary literacies has been a huge piece to understanding adolescent literacy. So with this project, what I really wanted to do was to bring together sort of my knowledge about the field of literacy and specifically disciplinary literacies and looking at how it is applied within an actual classroom context in the field of history.
0: Yeah. And I think your article does exactly that. Talks about kind of the ideas in the field and applies it. Um, in a history classroom. So before we get there, can we lay out some context here? Um, you guys open your piece by talking about new literacies. Can you talk a little bit about what new literacies are and how they're being taken up right now in classrooms?
2: Yeah. So absolutely. Um, you know, n- new literacies is such a broad concept. Mm-hmm. There's so many facets to it, and it's evolved across time from sort of new literacy studies. And then looking at multi-literacies and um, thinking about digital literacies and how very often the term new literacies and digital literacies are sort of um, interchangeable. But one of the things that we wanted to focus on with respect to all sort of this broad work in new literacies are the ways that it really is um, multimodal and participatory in nature. And that it should be an empowering process for shaping the practices, the literacy practices of youth. And so one of the things that we have done as we have kind of conceptualized new literacies for this study is to try to kind of tease out the notion of technology and look at that sort of broader picture of not just technological tools, but thinking about how are they applied or utilized in ways that truly empower youth and invite them to think about technology in a participatory and multimodal
0: fashion. Yeah, I think that's well said because we talk about new literacies as being this, you're right, this kind of encompassing thing to encompass digital literacies, but also kind of other new ways of, of looking at ourselves as not just kind of consumers of, of 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 content, but also kind of creators and digital uh platforms gives us gives us the opportunity to be creators, right? To to not just be readers and writers, but sound and mo- all those multimodal things. Um and so you have that part, the new literacies part. But then you also come from a disciplinary literacy stance as well. Um can you talk a little bit about um disciplinary literacy and how that connects with new literacies?
2: No, oh, sure. Yes. And I think that's one of the most fascinating parts of this study is that intersection. And it's been something as, again, a researcher who's done a lot of work with contentary and disciplinary literacies, it's kind of pushed my own thinking. And I think it's a natural evolution in the conversation occurring in the field. But as we think about d- disciplinary literacies for this study, we came to look at it as really sort of the habits of mind that are needed to develop knowledge within a discipline, um, that it's very focused on understanding how experts quote unquote, construct knowledge or think like a disciplinary expert. Um, But for our work, we wanted to kind of tease out, again, a lot of the research in the field on studying how to experts read and write and construct knowledge within a particular discipline. And then look at the pedagogical or the curricular aspect of disciplinary literacies. So once we have kind of articulated and mapped out what disciplinary literacies are from that notion of how an expert uses them, now how do we start to think about this in terms of adolescent literacy and adolescent development and actual teachers in a classroom who are navigating both a kind of content knowledge or expertise, and then a pedagogical knowledge of teaching adolescents to become um, experts, again, quote-unquote, within a particular discipline. So um, one of the things that we also kind of came to with our thinking about disciplinary literacies had to do with the fact that literacy instruction really needs to take place within the disciplines. And that's been a sort of almost controversial notion over the years. But I think that the field has really evolved more to this place and seen that we really need more literacy instruction in the disciplines and specifically disciplinary literacy
0: instruction. Right. So teaching students how to read and write and construct knowledge like someone in that discipline. So it's reading and writing instruction, literacy instruction, but also how people in the field are are going about that literacy because when you talk about new literacies, um, people in the field, right. Of history, let's say historians Mm -hmm. are using, like, it's not like this is not a classroom thing new new literacies Like they're, they're using a lot of these multimodal tools in their profession. The experts are. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense to make this connection between, okay, if we want to kind of teach them like experts and prepare them um, to think and create like people in this field, well, that's going to involve digital tools, right, for example, because that's occurring in the field. Mm-hmm. So let's get to your study then. So with that kind of backdrop of looking at new literacies and looking at how those shows up show up um, in specific disciplines in specific discipline ways of thinking. Um, now, let, let, let's get to your study. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the makeup of your study, where it took place, who are your participants, a little bit about that?
2: Sure, absolutely. I want to take one step back for just a second and then also invite Johanna to um, add some comments, um, especially about an expert whom we had come out and modeled his research to the students we were working with. And then, yes, we'll get into the design of the study. But um, I want to go back to this, that connection between digital literacies and disciplinary literacies a little bit. Because I think there's a focal point that's really important there between these two domains of literacy research. And that has to do with the ways that both are sort of seeking to empower students. And Mm -hmm. both are predicated on inquiry. And so this, for us, became really salient in thinking about, again, how do we bring these two domains of thinking together? But Johanna, I would love for you to talk a little bit about our our colleague from the university, who is a historian and a very well published and known researcher in his area of historical research and then how the students responded to what he modeled for them.
1: Yeah, so we were trying to think about um, again, you know, in the school itself, you have the teachers who are their own form of you know, quote unquote experts, but they may or may not necessarily be engaging with the current field. So they may or may not be, um, you know, really staying current, if you will, on historians practices. And so we thought, um, and the teachers agreed, let's get like an actual historian, somebody who says that's what they do for their job to come and share with the students, you know, about, about how they work in their process. And so um, this This professor came and he talked about um, some w- work that we thought that he thought students would be really interested in, um, because some of it centered around um, bathroom conversations um, between uh, students in a war-torn country that should not, in theory, have been friends and and in fact, the different factions that were warring, they were all part of, you know, those groups. But they'd come together in this bathroom and have sort of this negotiated space um, mm. where they were just kind of typical adolescents, right? Like they're smoking cigarettes in the high school bathroom and and even poking fun at each other for like the, the various religious backgrounds that were causing all this conflict. And so we thought, mm. oh, this how fascinating, right? Like they're high schoolers, the students we're working with are high schoolers. They'll find this really fascinating. Um, and and this professor uses Google Forms um, as a way to collect uh, their data um, and to make sense of all of the archival pieces out there. And the students we work with are, are using Google. And so we were really excited that there would be all these great connections for the students. Um, and there were not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in fact, well. students were really disengaged, which we thought was, again, interesting that from our, our assumption um, was that they, this would be something that would be really salient for them and help them to sort of make these connections of a disciplinary expert and disciplinary literacies and their own work and, and their digital literacies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did not pan out the way that we hoped. So that was just sort of an interesting um, finding in and of itself of, one, what we thought would work didn't, which I'm sure every teacher everywhere is like, yes, (laughs) our daily experience, but also (laughs) that, that maybe there's some more work to be done in thinking through how experts really can push into a classroom. What are the pedagogical um, underpinnings and pieces of disciplinary literacy that we would need to ensure um, in order for this to actually become something that's effective for, for the students.
0: So, so even if you don't, know exactly why (laughs) maybe it wasn't as engaging um i mean i think we at the very least would you say that we can look at just bringing an expert right that display literacy and having an expert share with kind of the apprenticeship model right have the expert Mm -hmm. share with with um with students that alone is not enough to kind of achieve the goals right
1: yeah absolutely
0: Hmm. Okay. And that's yeah. so what's
2: fascinating is so, that's yeah, that gap between disciplinary literacies and pedagogy about disciplinary yeah. literacies. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, and I mean this is sometimes the complaint you hear in higher ed as well, sometimes, right? Where you, you might have a, a professor who's a content expert but lacks the pedagogical tools to make that interesting or engaging mm-hmm. for some of the students as well. So so that was help me with the timeline. Was that done prior to your study?
1: This was oh, during the study. During it was study. Part, part, of part of it, it. yes.
0: Oh, okay. mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, which we can talk a little bit about now yeah, because please. it's salient. This example is salient to the ways that we had organized this project. So um, first, I should say that this study was funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it was really predicated on supporting students in developing a National History Day project. And so as part of that, we designed a study or a project where we met with students and did co designed and in some cases, co-taught lessons um, uh, during what we called lab days, one day a week, leading up to the development of individual or small group National History Day projects. And so this example with the faculty member from our university who is a a renowned clear quote expert in history, um, that was was from one of our lab days that we invited this individual to come in and talk about his actual research and show students um, different facets of how he conducted research, um, photographs, all kinds of artifacts and things pertaining to his research. And then also talked about how he managed his data and in the ways that Johanna had described. And so um, that was just one of the lab days. So we had these several lab days where he had different lessons and activities for students. And again, some of them were designed by us and we took the lead on them. And then most of them were designed by the teachers who participated in the study. So I think that that. That kind of framing of how we all came together is really important. And speaking of that, of the study design, we had three history teachers who participated in this project, and they all taught multiple sections of a ninth grade history class. And in our state, it is human geography. That grade level was selected when we were designing this project because it doesn't have a state assessment attached to it. So. The school district felt it, that they could offer us a little latitude to do this work with students, and and they were enthusiastic about it. I, I must say they're very supportive. They saw it as a great opportunity to support college readiness at this high school, and so and to get high school kids involved in National History Day where they had not been prior to our project at this in this school district. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and so so they're developing a project. Were your three history teachers, what was their attitude going in? Were they excited to to take part in this as well?
2: Yes, so they they volunteered because there were other history teachers at the high school who were also teaching the same class, and they had the option to opt out. So um, these three teachers volunteered, and um, they had to participate in some summer professional development prior to starting the work. And then we would meet periodically with them and kind of uh, assess how things were going and uh, what we needed to do next kind of thing. But then we also worked every week with them through a shared Google Slides document developing a lesson. And so again, we we took the lead on some of the initial lessons. And then it was was almost like gradual release where they were then taking more and more, more ownership. Of developing the lab day lessons, and um, until we got to the point where we were just working with the students on putting together their projects. And that's where some of the digital literacies data became really fascinating because we were watching in real time how teachers were conceptualizing and then coaching students around how to integrate technology or use technology to support the development of their
3: projects.
0: Yeah, so, so let's get into that. You have um, three history, history teachers, teachers participating. They're creating this national history project. Um, the school seems to be really so supportive. The collaboration with teachers, I'm going to have some follow-up questions there because that's really interesting how you're collaborating with teachers.
3: Indeed. Um, and,
0: mm-hmm. they're, and they're using digital tools to create these projects. Um, it seems like you got really cool uni- university support, school support, teachers are on board. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what happened with these projects?
2: Sure, absolutely. So again, a little bit about the context of the school that I think is important. Um, We were working with approximately 320 students, predominantly ninth grade students. We had a few students who were back taking a ninth grade level class. We even had one class of high school students, I mean, sorry, seniors, (laughs) seniors who were involved in this as Mm. well, but predominantly they were ninth grade students. And I think it's important to note the overall context of the school. It's considered an urban school mostly because of student demographics. We' are located in a mid-sized city in the southwestern United States, and the school has a predominantly underrepresented population of students. and okay. um, The other thing that the school has that is common, I think, across the United States and why it's important to note this is that it has a history of being deemed a underperforming school based on achievement data about the school. So the ways that our state evaluates um, schools and ranks them, um, a big portion of that is based on student achievement. And this school has struggled with, um, you know, being under under the guise of our state to
0: improve student test scores, basically.
3: So at yeah. this stage, okay.
0: I, it's... Okay. Oh, go ahead. I think that's important context because I think sometimes when we read articles too, we wonder, okay, but will this apply to my more challenging school setting? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for this study, you're already working with a school that's been traditionally underperforming um, maybe under-resourced so you're already working in a um, what has been a traditionally a challenging environment for teachers um, and so that's I think it's really important for for the context of study thank you for I sharing.
1: think it's I think it's worth noting too that and I think you already said this Melanie but that we worked with all of the students too mm-hmm. so it wasn't just students who are high achieving or just students who showed an interest in history it was every student who is enrolled in that course? Um, which I think, again, is also helpful because yep. sometimes, as you read these articles, you're like, oh, okay, well, you you know, you were working with students who who chose to be there, so there's some motivation. We every it was something that the teachers were doing with all of their students, and so we had um, just you know a, a whole variety of of student types.
3: That's yep,
2: exactly I, right. Inclusion yeah. students, students yeah. from English is not their first language, or um, in our state, they're designated as emergent bilingual students at the high school level. So, um, yes. And I, I think that's really important. I think that's a very powerful piece to this study, even though it's kind of a footnote when you read the article, because it is, it is about really wanting to empower all students and to really think about college readiness for all students. And this high school too has a designation of being an early college high school. It's a fairly recent designation, but again, if it's truly, if the goal, the goal with early college high school is to make college accessible for underrepresented populations of learners, then it was critical for us to reach out to as many teachers as, as we could get to participate in this and to include all students. In the project,
0: yeah. Thank you for that. Because you mentioned previously about the importance of inquiry and empowering students, right? You mentioned that several times, and so here's maybe some some students who have not felt empowered within the education system, at least up to this point. So, working towards providing opportunities for students to, to feel empowered, who maybe haven't felt that in the past.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay. So, what what happened? <laughs> what, what were some of your findings when you uh, when you worked on this project?
2: So. There's so many stories and so many layers to this work, as you can imagine. What we did was we sort of honed in for the article for GEL in terms of our analysis, looking at the following research question, which was how do teachers and students navigate digital literacies to access disciplinary knowledge in the field of history? So, with that question in mind, um, we started looking really deeply at our kind of three primary sources of data. Um, one being massive, a massive volume of field observation notes, observation field notes, and the, each of the lab days, and just sort of watching what was happening and recording, and trying to create as as clean a transcript as possible of what was happening in each of the classes um, across our team. And there were three of us um, who were doing this work at that time, and. Um, so then, in our analysis, we really we also interviewed teachers and we did focus groups with students. Both of those pieces of data came at the conclusion of the project, and we wanted to kind of use those, of course, to triangulate our what we were seeing with the field notes, but also to, to deepen our understanding about things we'd observed, especially with the ways kids were responding to using digital literacies, for instance, and how. Um, and, you know, what we were seeing. So we wanted to kind of understand their perspective with that. So what we found um, with this study was is a lot of disconnect and struggle between the teachers and the students surrounding the integration, really, of technologies, but also digital literacies, you know, and that kind of broader definition that we talked about earlier. And a lot of the tasks that were difficult for them had to do with, this whole notion of what it means to read, write, and think like historians. So that disciplinary literacies piece became part of the challenge of helping students navigate digital literacies. So we really came to see these two, again, domains of literacy research is just so intertwined with each other through this project. Some of the gaps that were noted um, had to do with some things that really do make you think that there's you know huge gaps in student understanding. But we want to speak to this the sort of deficit lens as well because we problematize that a lot through our work. But uh, we we saw students just identifying search terms that would yield the information they sought and struggling with things like just how to spell a word they were trying to look up of something that they wanted to study for their National History Day project. Certainly, search optimization was um, challenging as well. But assessing the validity of information gathered online, that was something that the teachers would talk a lot about. They would talk a lot about how to use Wikipedia, for instance, and how to use it as sort of this entrance into a topic, but then looking deeply at what were the sources that were supporting what was stated on Wikipedia and then going to those sources. Our expert from the university echoed the same thing without prompting, which is, was interesting and nice that there was that confluence um, that of thinking that way. But uh, there was a lot of challenge with students thinking or, or teachers seeing how students were able to assess the validity of any kind of online information. Um, Thinking about a historical timeline was another challenge that the teachers taught about in, in different lessons and was difficult for students to then translate into their projects. So having students to do things like um, think about the present and go back 100 years and think about your top topic that way, what has happened, what kinds of events, what kind of um Evolution and innovation has taken place across that time, those kinds of things. Organizing sources, citing sources, um, even copying and pasting materials from an online source, like a photograph, into a digital document, um, saving URLs, bookmark them to go back to later. Um, Those kinds of things were challenging. And then looking at sort of more. Um, what could be deemed as sort of academic literacy skills, like reading an article or a source for the gist and just sort of getting the, the main idea. Teachers talk to students a lot about that. In fact, they, they advocated skimming <laughs> documents, you know, and just get the gist of it. Um, but then an, another facet kind of related to that with respect to reading was seeking out multiple perspectives around the topic which is very important in the field of history. We could argue it's important in every every discipline, but particularly in history, that's important because you often have sort of competing notions about a phenomenon or an event because people are experiencing historical events and um, innovations, et cetera, differently based on sort of their life circumstances. So um, those were sort of, like the big picture findings in terms of what we noticed with just observing students' behaviors. And when we talked to teachers about this, they echoed a a lot of the concerns and had a very um, deficit view about students' skills. They would say things like they read at a very low level, so all of this other work is very challenging for them. But when we started to talk to students, we got some other information that was really compelling that kind of helped us understand truly what the quote deficit was that that appeared in the classroom. Johanna, do you want to add anything to kind of the overall point? No,
1: I think I think that covers it pretty well that um, there were just a lot of areas the students struggled and the ways in which those struggles were interpreted by teachers were sort of the deficit. They can't do this, they can't do this, but student focus groups were really helpful in help, you know, helping to get obviously the student side of it, but also to sort of dig in deeper to how they're, they're actually using technology and their perceptions of technology um, and the implications that could have then of course, for, for a classroom.
0: Okay. Uh, so much done pack here. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, when I, you know, I read a lot of articles um, and um, in my work as a, um, as an associate editor for JAL, and just, just in my, you know, and being in this hired position, but I'm, I'm kind of new to this position. I have been here, but over a year, prior to that, I was 14 years in the high school English classroom. And so when I read kind of the beginning of your study, um, I was expecting it to go to the point where they create these amazing projects and you learn so much about how cool discipline literacy is and new literacies are when you combine them. And that didn't that's not the way the article went at all. And I appreciate that because your article, there were so many moments, and I have the article here and I marked like how relatable it was and how many times I had these same experiences, even like simple things like yeah, knowing how to spell the words you're searching for. Um, and how this can, you know, you have these big grand aims, the school is on board, the teachers are on board, everyone's excited, um, and then no one can spell the word right. And then it can deteriorate and get frustrating from there. Um, and all these issues that you guys, or all these challenges and gaps you guys talked about. Um, and I think seeing those gaps play out from a teacher's perspective, right, can lead you to create some of these kind of deficit assumptions and deficit uh, mindset, like just saying, oh, well, they just are unable to do the work. Are they unable to read? Um, and so I want to kind of unpack. Uh, let's start with these two, two, two topics of. So I want to talk about the use of technology, but also kind of this deficit mindset. Um, since mm-hmm. you both mentioned it, let's start there. Um, so the teachers did this project. It didn't, there was a lot of challenges within the project. And so teachers, I think, often maybe conclude, and I've, I mean, been in the classroom for 14 years, I know it too, mm-hmm. to kind of can throw up their hands and say, oh, well, the students are just. Can't read on grade level, or the students are just this, or the students are just that. Um, so, can you unpack what did you guys teased me a little bit with what the students were saying? What what were the students saying, and how did that maybe challenge or um, help you to see things from a, a different way as opposed to what the teachers were saying?
2: Yeah, well, we were there. Were a couple things that struck us immediately as sort of outsiders coming into these con these classroom contexts, and one was that we should also mention about the school context that. They, the school and the district had invested a lot of money and energy into purchasing Google Chromebooks for students to use. And that started um, with the pandemic and um, the quarantine phase of that. And even the, that first year sort of following quarantine in our state, which our state had a short
3: quarantine period,
2: but students during the 2020-2021 school year they had the option of remote learning or learning in the classroom, so they could come back. But if they came back to face-to-face instruction, there was a great deal of social distancing, practices, masking, et cetera. And all of the instruction was really contained on the Chromebook using the the digital platform of Google Classroom.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: even though kids might be sitting physically in a classroom, sort of, sort of next to each other. They were spaced out. Um, Mm -hmm. they, uh, they, they weren't really interacting with each other much. So all of the instruction was, okay, go to today's lesson on Google classroom, pull up whatever, um, the teacher had posted there for that day's lesson and do the work. And so it was individualized. There were students who were online who were coming in through Google meets, um, sort of sporadically. Uh, we were, we were part of, um, of the, that year as well, because this is actually a multi-year project. Mm-hmm. And what we did for this study is look at that year following kind of the initial um, uh, return from sort of quarantine. And then the year that this study took place was 2021, 2022. So it was that full return from remote learning. That was not an option. But we were watching what was happening with kids who would Comment and say sorry. You know, Mr. So and So, I had to help my mom with something, but I'm in class now. <laughs> you know, it was very, a very interesting time to be teaching. But we well, when and, we and were
0: even done, returning back, I was teaching at that time too in high school, and it was yeah. this weird space where you know the freshmen missed essentially all of eighth grade in exactly. the, in in the traditional classroom setting, and so you lose a lot, not just kind of content wise, but Um, socially and all that other stuff that that you lose. And so there you come fresh out of that. That's a whole nother layer of challenges. Yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, yes. And and in our district, um, different principals called, uh, referred to the students at that stage as feral. They got very used to just doing what they wanted to do when and tapping into whatever they were doing in class on their schedule. And so once they returned into a physical building, they had lost like this this really important stage of development and just you know how to navigate that space, but um, also just sort of wanted to do what they wanted to do when. And so mm-hmm. that, that was a whole process that uh, teachers were contending with. But one of the things that we noticed was how the kids regarded their Chromebooks. And it took us a while to sort of say, this is something to pay attention to. They would come to class without their Chromebooks, If they had their Chromebook, it would, the battery would be dead and they wouldn't have their charger with them. And um, it was, it was very interesting because we started then talking to students about just in, in situ, in classroom settings, tell us about your Chromebook, tell us about what's happening. How come you never have your Chromebook with you in charge and you have to borrow one or there's not enough chargers in the classroom, et cetera. And they would tell us, they hated it. They absolutely hated. They hated the whole digital platform of the way they were interacting with technology. And um, so they were. This, these were acts of resistance. And so as we started to understand from the students' perspective, what looked like this very, well, it was disengaged behavior, but also a, kind of a deficit, like they couldn't do some of these things. Um, with technology, what we came to understand in talking to them was, no, they're very adept with many facets of using technology, but they were not engaged with the ways they were being asked to use technology in the classroom.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think teachers everywhere are nodding their heads about, I mean, many schools now are with the one-to-one with laptops and um, teachers everywhere are nodding their heads with this idea of kids forgetting their laptops, kids' laptops somehow breaking over and over again, kids' <laughs> laptops, forgetting their chargers over and over again. And so some of this gets chalked up as, oh, these students today are just irresponsible. Mm-hmm. But but maybe it's more than, than that, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So when you have students coming in and they're slow to log in, they look like they can't, they're having difficulty finding their class to log into in Google mm-hmm.
3: Classroom.
2: What the teachers tended to do was to respond in a way that was this kind of deficit mindset. Oh, they don't know how to do this. So I need to teach them some very basic, what we called usability tools or skills of things like, um, okay, use control Z to do X, Y, and Z. Or Mm -hmm. here's how you share your Google Doc with other classmates in your group and spending a lot of time repeating those kinds of lessons. And so as researchers, we're seeing this kind of um, very low-level approach to thinking about digital literacies, and we're seeing students responding in a very kind of um, disconnected and what would look like a a deficit way. And so... Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because traditionally we view, right, as young people growing up with technology, being more adept at technology than the older generation, and yet, when that's now applied to an academic setting, all of a sudden, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> these young people all of a sudden now are unable to adapt to the technology that they've been adapting to their entire lives. And now teachers have to, once again, take on this expert role, when really we know students know a lot more about technology, usually more than the teacher knows. And so it's it's weird, right, that mm-hmm. that now kind of the roles get reversed just because we're sitting in the classroom now, that all of a sudden teachers then... Take on this explicit expert role, um, mm-hmm. and students kind of require that. Yeah, it's just, this is a weird dynamic.
1: And I think too, all of the moves for whole group instruction on these usability skills, like you know shortcuts on the keyboard and how to share and things like that, move away from the disciplinary literacies. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we sort of lost the. Um, the primary goal of creating these national history day projects and helping students to think and become historians because we're focusing on, again, kind of these low level skills mm-hmm. that we're assuming they, they can't do when really um, perhaps there's some intentionality behind them, not doing it in this sort of act of resistance.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, can we go back to that? And so, and so this, this, that then leads to kind of this deficit view of not just literacy skills, well, literacy skills, but specifically digital literacy skills that um, mm-hmm. they just didn't, they, they weren't able to possess. And so I guess a lot of the explicit instruction time, Johanna, as you mentioned, were spent talking about how to use these, do these shortcuts and use these digital tools um, as opposed to teaching kind of the new literacy as opposed to teaching, I guess not the literacy as part of it, but as, as opposed to teaching how to kind of think and produce like a historian. Yeah, um, yeah it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it became very skill-based as opposed to thinking-based.
2: Yeah. Do, you know, to do our definitions about new literacies and think about yeah. things like participatory, multimodal, yeah. inquiry, empowering, and think about What? how that was just completely missing from this project. And one thing I I do want to note with this is that when you do a National History Day project, there are parameters and guidelines that students have to follow. So some of the, the projects that they can do with that, it can be things like a documentary or a website, but the website that they build, they have to use a certain, again, digital platform that is is utilized by National History Day, and it may or may not be something that the students want to work in. And so I think, too, we have to kind of look at um, the ways that technology that's marketed for educational purposes, whether it's, you know, like Google Classroom, for instance, um, Edpuzzle, um, that... And, and even the, the platforms used by National History Day, that they don't really mimic the ways that kids in Gen Z are using technology just from a tool standpoint. And so when we're asking them to do things like um, cut and paste a URL or something to or to share information with a, a project member, it's so different from the ways that they would share information on tiktok with one of their friends
0: yeah yeah. And I, yeah i think that's a good point and sometimes i think as teachers we think okay we know we want to make these home to school connections right like how can we tap in their home literacies what they're doing outside of school and utilize that in school and we think technology and we think okay i'm going to add a technology element to, to this and that's meeting that connection um but it's not true and and it's, it's not as simple as that mm-hmm. and Alongside that, you mentioned Google Classroom. I think sometimes when we think teaching with technology, we mean, okay, we'll post the assignment to Google Classroom or we'll make a shared drive or whatever, shared folder. Um, and then I'm using technology, right, in, in that way. And maybe that's not the way experts in the field use that technology. So, right.
2: But and, there's and the also... other element...
0: Yeah, go go ahead, Melanie. Oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. All
2: say, right, then one
0: last point and then, and then you can go and then go with it. <laughs> Um the 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 last point I'll make, and this goes back to this idea of of how kids are really using it, right? They're they're using social media, but how did they learn how to use these tools in social media, right? They weren't explicitly taught, here's how you you know create content, here's how you create an image and put audio in the back of that image, right? They intuitively pick this up because they're engaged with the, the activity, because they have kind of this motivation to learn this tool, and then there's a billion resources out there right to teach them how to do these things even if they wanted to go to like a youtube video right and so learning how to copy and paste something you you don't need a teach like you can figure that out right um but if there's no engagement there there's no desire there then even if you teach them how to do it five times they're not going to remember mm-hmm. it or or use it in a, in a different setting all right i made my yeah. point smell <laughs> <laughs> no it's really it,
2: um I was just going to say that one of the mistakes that teachers make, and I see this all the time, not just in our study, but in you know other contexts where I'm doing other projects, is that they approach technology from a very teacher-centered place.
3: Mm.
2: So teachers are in control of the technology in the classroom. And in the school district where we're doing a lot of work, every classroom has a smart board and the teachers have, you know, they may have like a mobile Key, keypad that or keyboard that they can move around the classroom with, but the focus of the classroom is always at the front of the room, and it is controlled by the teacher. And even if they ask a the student to go up and tap something or something on the smart board, it is still all controlled by the teacher. So it's a, a PowerPoint or Google slide presentation. Um, they may embed some things in their lessons that, again, involve EdPuzzle, EdPuzzle, um, which are my understanding and very cursory, cursory manner, are kind of teacher made videos about content area mm-hmm. um, topics, but it's very, what they do is they position students in this passive place. And even though we may go, oh, well, these kids, they sit on TikTok and they just scroll and swipe and watch one little video clip after the next, after the next, after the next, or even on YouTube. And that it is, that's still a kind of passive activity there's there's some there's some ingredients there that are really missing, and one is that the students are navigating what they're viewing, right? They're, they have a question in mind, and it may be about pop culture, it may be about watching sports highlights or something from games that occurred over the weekend, but they have their own interest to find that information, and in terms of sort of the 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 technical tools that they need to do that, how they learn that is a lot of it is trial and error or it's watching a buddy or somebody, another peer explaining to them, no, do this, just, you know, hit this, that opens up whatever. So um, I, I think that it's kind of, it's a huge challenge for teachers to try to mimic the ways that adolescents Engage in literacy outside of school. I think it is a huge challenge, and it may may be even a mistake to attempt it. So again, Ed Puzzle as -hmm. an example—not to pick on Ed Puzzle, but it's just kind of my new favorite um, tool (laughs) to talk (laughs) about. But that it—you might think that it's supposed to be like YouTube, but it's not. It's not like YouTube at all, and um, and there's not that sense again of, of. as as a viewer, how I can navigate that technology for my own purposes and interests.
0: Yeah, a uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast I had Mr. Friesen and Dr. Simon talk about uh their their article was about Fahrenheit 451 using sound inquiry and they used GarageBand to add um mm-hmm. audio behind some of the the chapters of Fahrenheit 451. So it kind of be cool. They would read a chapter and add audio in the background. And I told them, I was like, I think that's awesome, guys. I'm not going to do that. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I don't know anything about GarageBand. I don't know how I would even go about teaching kids how to use that. Mm -hmm. And they told me, I'm curious to get Melanie and Johanna. I'm curious to get your perspective on this. What they told me is like, uh, they said, Matt, that's a personal issue where you feel like you need to have control Of everything that happens in your classroom and sometimes using digital tools means giving up being the expert and letting students be the experts and letting students kind of drive their learning and the creation and let them collaborate and just be at peace that you don't need to know how to use every tool that the students will be using um do you think some of this is calling on teachers to be able to step from that authoritarian uh, the author- role of the authority in the classroom, the role of the expert in the classroom and kind of join with the students, maybe as kind of co-creators and figure this stuff out together. I guess thoughts on that.
2: Well, I think absolutely. No question. <laughs> and that teacher really needs to, to adopt an authentic inquiry stance as much as we're asking students to do that in the case of our project with project based learning it's
1: critical.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of that is also, um, we have, we, we've got to make students center again. Um, and I think that's really challenging. I, it's one of those things where I hear it. and I'm like, yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. Um, but right before this podcast, I was out of school. Right. And it's like, it's really hard in context because this, these teachers have all these pressures of Mm -hmm. standards and behavior and, and everything comes back. The system is designed to always come back and reflect on the teacher. Um, And so I think the teacher then feels like they need to try to control all of these things that are going to impact their evaluation and how they're viewed. And so, so I think there's a lot of forces working against this sort of um, type of Student-centered inquiry-based learning. However, I think that when we do it, when we, we when we do let go as teachers, and we say, "Okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to use this technology that I know my students have used or are capable of using. I may not know it, but I'm going to let them teach me." That we'll see um, students rise to the occasion and and probably shock ourselves as teachers that um, these students who we thought couldn't do all these things. Are actually these little geniuses that have just been sitting in front of us that that we just weren't tapping into because we were getting in the way. Honestly, <laughs> well, and yeah. we saw kids, yeah, we go saw
3: ahead.
1: inclinations of that
2: in classrooms where students have like multiple tabs open, and they know when a teacher comes by a click, they're going to go from watching sports highlights to um, going into their Google Classroom. Um, we watch them share things in the classroom that have nothing to do with uh, what's happening in the lesson using their cell phones. And they are absolutely adept, but there's, there's a few things that I think we ought to talk about with this as well, that we found out in our study that when we did the focus groups of students, many of them talked about how much they hated social media. Mm -hmm. They hated Google classroom (laughs) (laughs) and the Chromebooks and that kind of very um, digitized worksheet approach to using technology. But they also talked to us a lot about sort of the stress and the, the pressure of using social media and how they they did not like it. And I've, I've actually heard this for years as a researcher from adolescence, um, going way back to when we had things like MySpace and how mm-hmm. the kind of anxiety inducing creating mm-hmm. a MySpace page was for adolescent. And that, that time I was studying adolescent girls in particular, but, um, so we were, we were fascinated by that because they're very connected to their phones, or if they're even on a, if they don't have their phone out and they're using the Chromebook, they're still listening to music and they're looking up different things that, that they can access through the platform that don't pertain to the class.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think most people agree. And even adolescents, it sounds like would concur with this, that social media does not enhance happiness in, in any mm-hmm. way. Um, mm-hmm. And so, well, well, that leads me to uh, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> so <laughs> if, if we're faced with this challenge, right, and you mentioned this idea of of kind of inquiry, right, and project-based learning, inquiry-based, um, yet we know students maybe are resistant, resistant towards some of the technologies, some of the platforms mm-hmm. we're using, even resistant to the platforms they're using, like like social media, mm-hmm. um, yet we want them to prepare them to be experts in their disciplines. How do we do that? How do how, what does effective inquiry? Let's stick with history since we're there. Um, in your opinion, what might effective inquiry look like in a classroom?
2: Well, I think that this kind of comes around to um, some of the discussion from our manuscript and, um, again, going back to not using technology that's presented in a whole class manner, in a preemptive manner, that, hey, you're going to need to know how to do, and so I'm going to show you how to do this, but to do more of that just-in-time coaching with students. And so if we are truly teaching students to engage in project-based learning and, and inquiry of you know other other types but inquiry in general that I think it's really important to take our cues from the students and that becomes difficult when you again as Johanna said you have standards you have to follow pacing guides um, things like that but it, it truly if we're going to go that direction, we need to be thinking about personalized learning and what that really means, especially when we think about technology or digital literacies, and how do we how do we how do we deal with this kind of just-in-time learning? And I think that we have to also look very, um, like, take a deep look at who Gen Z students are and how they gather information. Um, this kind of steady stream of information that they're used to in their lives, how they see information is kind of um, what we have we have come to think about as sort of horizontal, meaning that um, everybody's an expert.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You're listening to everybody's opinion and a kind of crowdsourcing approach to gathering information where there's this sort of wisdom of the crowd that they're looking at. Um
0: And by the way, that crowdsourcing is often very um, personalized, right? So if they're on TikTok, they're they're seeing information over and over again that feeds into a specific viewpoint because it's personalized just for them. So it's not like they're crowdsourcing from multiple perspectives. They're often crowdsourcing from a single perspective.
3: Oh, absolutely.
2: And Johanna and I were just talking about this the other day. And Johanna, if you want to talk about the echo chamber a little bit, because that was sort of one of your observations as well.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it just exactly what you were just saying, Matt, of like, if I go, if I go to TikTok, TikTok's going to tell me what I need to know. You know, it's Mm -hmm. my generation and friends, we might say, like, I'm going to go to Target and Target will tell me what I need. And I think the students are the same way. Like, I'm going to get on TikTok and it will tell me what I need to watch and what I should think. And so um, I think as teachers, that's where we need to be careful uh, to not, go too far in the other direction of let's fully embrace TikTok and try or whatever technology they're using mm-hmm. and try to make everything like that, because there's a lot of danger there in the sense of um, you have to be aware that the algorithm is feeding you more videos on what you already thought. And and so, yeah, you are getting a very limited perspective. And so, yeah, I think um, we have to think about in school and our role and our job of helping to experts and thinking about history, if we really want them to think about um, how to think and know like a historian, then sourcing and corroboration is really important Mm
3: -hmm. and getting
1: all of the perspectives, even perspectives you disagree with, or that might, uh, you know, contradict the narrative that you have been seeing Mm -hmm. or reading, um, but all of that's really valuable. Um, But I think it all has to start with the students. We've got to, it has to be student-centered as opposed to preemptive. So instead of me getting up and doing a whole lesson on how do I corroborate sources and find different perspectives, having students already doing the research on whatever they are interested in Mm -hmm. in this uh, study within their, the National History Day confines. And as they're they're going and they're researching and they'll, they'll say like, Look at all this stuff I found about, you know, whatever, that that's when the teacher says, okay, Mm -hmm. everything you've read, does it all agree with this? If so, you might, you might need to dig deeper, right? Like again, Mm -hmm. very much so that just in time, as the student is discovering, then the teacher steps
2: in. Yeah. And I think this also points to the fact that when we talk about new literacies or digital literacies. We need to stop thinking about these kind of technological tools and we need to think about conceptual facets of it. Mm -hmm. So if we start with students' experiences, which I think all good teaching needs to do that, and asking them to really look at the ways that they're using digital literacies in their everyday lives, but then also talk to them about things like the echo chamber and that how information is getting so tailored to what we search for, and then that's all we're getting, you know, because we're being sold products. But we're also part of those products have to do with ideologies. And to really think, have students think through that deeply and to study themselves and to interrogate their own practices, I think that is a critical starting point. And then mapping on, just as Johanna mentioned, things like corroboration and contextualizing and sourcing, and these things that we think about as sort of those disciplinary tools of what it means to think like, read like, write like, produce like a historian. And so that it sounds kind of um, simplistic to say start with the student, but what that means is you know, start with their experiences, but get them to interrogate what's happening with the ways they're using technology so that they can really come to a place of um, developing multiple perspectives and questioning at a a higher level, the ways that information is generated and produced.
0: Yeah. And to that point, uh, looking at your article, I kind of underlined all the things that Pretty much I was, I was and continue to be gu- guilty of as a teacher. Um, and you mentioned this to go to go along with that point, um, to quote your article. It says, it was a mistake to front load digital literacy skill lessons before students had a solid purpose for using them to investigate a topic they were deeply interested in. It reminds me of George Hillocks when talk about writing, he writes a lot about how school is the only place where you can write without any inquiry, right? You're asked to, here, write this essay based on something you just saw <laughs> and you really didn't think deeply about it at all. And so, I think what 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 you call te- teachers to do is is to start with kind of inquiry, start with them getting into a topic, learning about a topic, and then the digital tools you can talk about later, as they you know talk about different ways they want to produce what they've um, come to understand. Um, is that right?
2: Yes, but also remember that both in our in our work we see both digital literacies and disciplinary literacies is driven by things like inquiry. Yeah. And so, when we start to map on the digital literacies, we need to bring that same thinking over into the disciplinary literacies column. And so, there's this convergence of both within both sort of domains of literacy work around inquiry. And then, what does that look like? What does that look like as a, you know, from a disciplinary lens as a historian? What does that look like um, in utilizing digital literacies so that we get, if, that's the way I think we get out of mm-hmm. the deficit mindset.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because you, as you guys make an argument here, and I think it's true that kind of deficit approaches are, are so detrimental because they also lead to bad teaching, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if you have this deficit mindset, it's going to mean you kind of reduce the rigor and you go back to teaching kind of these really kind of things you don't need to spend your time teaching because you're coming at it with with that kind of this idea that oh they they know nothing Mm -hmm. um and so it it leads to bad pedagogy
2: and we tend to be kind of pedantic in our thinking about what they need to know Um, and then position students once they're positioned in a deficit space they respond accordingly
0: yeah it becomes much more teacher-centered lecture-centered yeah. Uh, it's tell me behavior. all right well
2: tell me what to do Uh now, how do we do this again okay why do i have to save these urls in a document so i can go back like uh, what
3: you know <laughs> yeah, there's no environment there right
2: Yeah, they become very passive um they look resistant passive and incapable hmm.
3: all right i
1: think is social yeah, media to well i was just saying, i think social media positions them that way too especially the way that they often are using it in the sense of Um, sort of passive consumers, you know, I keep referencing TikTok because that's the main one they're using Mm -hmm. right now, but Mm -hmm. fill in the blank with whatever for my generation, it was MySpace, Facebook, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that will continue that, that we are in this sort of, again, um, disempowered passive consumers of social media. And we really want to break students out of that and to see themselves as empowered as, as uh, that they have agency and that, they can um, affect their their world. And the way that we typically teach um, is just continuing to position students in that passive consumer. I have the knowledge as the teacher, I'm the expert, you will get the knowledge from me. And it just sort of um, again, it it continues this cycle that I think a lot of us look at social media and we say, those are the problems with social media. This is bad for our students. And then we go and reproduce and, and replicate the same sort of environment in our classroom. And so starting with that inquiry and the students, the student inquiry can help, um, I think, break that cycle and, and help students to really see that they have um, power and that they can and should be um, transformative uh, agents of change.
0: Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up this conversation, I think we my, one of my last questions is advice for teachers who want to implement more technology in their classrooms. We've touched on, I think, a lot of the elements of kind of empowering students and in inquiry-based classrooms, project-based learning. Um, other advice or other points you kind of want to drive home here at the end of the conversation about for a teacher who's listening to this, who, who wants to who wants to implement some of these ideas, who wants to make this connection between disciplinary and, liter- and new li- li- literacy in a way that does empower his or her students. Um, and kind of final advice or points to drive home?
2: I would say be very critical about every kind of technological tool that is sold to you as the new thing that's going to engage Mm. students. And uh, because typically it doesn't really, you may have some compliant students, but um, in our experiences, what we've seen is kind of old wine and new bottles. And it's still, Mm -hmm. it's not getting to these places of, like uh, Johanna just said, of really empowering students and helping them see themselves as agents of their own learning, and so I think that's something that uh, that we would really um, encourage teachers to look at deeply.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of technology tools floating around every year. There's a hundred more, and exactly. it's, it's not enough just to sprinkle them in. We need to critically think. Um, if this is effective, how this is effective? Yeah, that's, I think good advice, Johanna. And
3: I think we need to,
2: with that, just a little uh, addition, and then Johanna yeah, can chime in. But I think that it's really important to again go back to the ways Gen Z uses technology, and mm. they want technology that is fast and seamless. And um, and then we're we're bringing into a classroom these different digital tools that are kind of. Awkward in a lot of ways, and so they may have something like, you know, a digital way to annotate what you're reading, and we think, okay, that's great. Students are interacting with that. It might even be in a shared document, but if it's if it's awkward to do that work, and it's actually faster to take a, a pen and use it on a piece of paper, we need to look really carefully at that and to talk to students about um, how they feel using this tool versus um, old, old
3: methods. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point of bringing students in this conversation too, right? Like if mm-hmm. you think this resource is easier for you to use and you use to, to annotate, well, talk to students about what's their preference and, and, and what are they comfortable with because that gives them more ownership over their notes as well and more buy-in from the student perspective too to pause and say, hey, students, what do you what, what, what do we think about this tool? Yeah, mm-hmm. so,
1: Yeah, I think my advice if a teacher said I want to, you know, incorporate more technology. How do I, how do I do that? I would say, um, always I'm always, I would always say caution with the idea of more technology and instead maybe analyze and look at what technology you're using and how you might use it better. Um, but then also thinking, um, about should the technology use in school be altogether different than technology use that from outside of school. So, so instead of, yeah, trying to find um, something that is similar to what they're doing at home and pull it into your classroom, maybe um, there needs to be some, it needs to be different in the classroom. Again, putting them as the active agent as opposed to um, the passive consumers. So anything that will really center the student and get them actively uh, participating, creating that is the technology I would say to look at. And it's probably going to be harder to find and not necessarily well packaged, but will be much uh, student much more student friendly. Yeah, <laughs> and, and maybe,
0: fi-
1: yeah, maybe fi-
0: fi- uh, finding uh, those tools yeah. will be a, a partnership, right, between the exactly. students and yep. the teacher. So you're yep. not just imposing these tools on the students.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. And I think we have to also think about the usage divide. You know, where students are using technology for entertainment information that's very personalized to them and what they're interested in and how in schools we want students to use technology for things like um, developing their college skills or college Mm. readiness skills. And in this case, with our study, learning how to research like a historian. And so that's something, too, we need to really take a hard look at and again, I would have conversations. Conversations with students and teachers around this, of how you know, we have these sort of competing goals for how we use technology and how do we how do we bridge that divide? And I think it's less about, as we talked about earlier in this podcast, trying to mimic exactly the way adolescents are using uh, digital literacies and technologies, because we're never gonna be there. They're always gonna be 10 steps ahead of us. <laughs> Yeah. They're always, when you think about social media, we, we think, oh, Instagram, I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm, I'm up to date now. Wrong. So <laughs> they're always going to be you know, ahead of us and that we shouldn't even attempt that, but we should engage them in conversations around it and uh, really get them, again, to interrogate their uses of technology and how that applies to the ways that in an academic setting, We want to use technologies and that will benefit them on that trajectory toward uh, college
3: readiness.
0: Yeah, these conversations around technology remind me of um, conversations we're having in the field around reading as well in in the secondary level. In that studies show that kind of the moment kids get turned off the most towards reading is in secondary classrooms based on what they're reading and what we're having them do with the reading um which always depresses me when i hear stuff like that but it's like um i feel that like the same things often happen to tech technology where we're turning them off towards technology mm-hmm. and we're turning them the, because of what we're doing with it right where we're, we're turning it into worksheets or busy work or whatever um we're kind of taking away the some of the cool stuff right some of the cool stuff that they can do with reading we're taking that away sometimes i feel like and some of the cool stuff that they can do with technology we're, we're taking that away and limiting that i think in some ways which is um, unfortunate. So I don't think your, your study is necessarily calling for less technology, right? But just calling for kind of more critical look at the tools we're using and why.
2: Yeah.
0: All right. Oh, Absolutely. so much good stuff we here.
3: Be,
2: we want students to be in that creative space with inquiry. Yeah. We want them to be really adept at thinking about multimodality and the affordances of that and how that changes the very knowledge that they're constructing but we can't get into that space until we address some of these other kinds of um, barriers to what's happening in classrooms typically.
0: Yeah, and just based on this conversation, I'm thinking about what comes next for you all. I just, I, I hear like endless <laughs> amounts of research <laughs> just with this conversation. Um, you mentioned this is a multi-year study. I'm curious if this work is still going on and and maybe kind of where do you all go from here with this work?
2: Yes, it is still going on. Um, This is actually our last year in terms of funding with the grant. And so we're really looking at sustainability. And we really want more and more for teachers to see the value of doing this work with students. And um, so that is kind of our big picture goal. But we are currently kind of digging deeper into this notion of college readiness as well. And um, looking at how we are, how we are fostering that or not, particularly with students who are as under, an underrepresented population of learners are really in the space of the kind of attainment aspiration gap. And so, um, with, with technology, kind of to go back to that discussion for just a second. Yes, we want students enthusiastic about that and engaged with it, but we also want that to be propelling them and preparing them for the academic rigors that they're going to need to get through later, like AP classes in high school and then um, to go on into college. And so that's that's kind of where we are right now.
0: Melanie, can I ask you a quick follow-up question that so you're still doing the study. Are you finding the same things to be true in your study now as in the study that you um, about Are you seeing the same results or or different?
2: Um, A little bit. So because I said earlier, this is such a complex study with all Mm -hmm. these moving parts. um, We've been looking at things like place-based learning and culturally responsive pedagogy as well. And we've had more success in those areas with teachers in terms of they're getting really enthusiastic about their own inquiry into place-based learning and culturally responsive pedagogy and modeling that for students, that that's been really important to kind of address that inquiry piece. And so um, we're still kind of working on the technology usability gap, <laughs> if you will, mm-hmm. and then a the teacher focused approach to technology, but we are making a lot of headway on these other fronts and what that's doing is engaging students more. And so what we're seeing um, last year and already into this year is that students are much more at ease with using technology. They're much more willing to do it. And so there's, it's, um, like I said, a lot of moving parts and they're all kind of influence influencing one another. And so that's that's honestly where we are right
0: now. Can I ask one more follow-up question? I'm sorry, we're going way over time. This is going to go down <laughs> longest podcast episode in j'all history. <laughs> I'm just curious, and you I was just as you were talking to me about the 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 three teachers who are doing this, did did they kind of read your results? Did they have they been reading some of your articles and, and some of your findings and have 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 you been able to talk to them about it?
2: Yeah. So what we have done every year is we do a presentation at the end of each year. Each year of this project, we take all of our data and we put it into a presentation and we share it with them and then we talk about, okay, so based on what happened this year, how should we modify this for next year? And so that's okay. that is absolutely how they contribute to what's happening and then that co-construction of the lab day lessons, um, you know, how that how that has evolved across time a little bit.
0: Yeah. I didn't even really get into the collaboration between university and teachers, but that's a whole other interesting side of things we'll have to hold there. Um, Johanna, what, what about you? What's what's next for you? Are you still involved in this study or, or what, what's next for you?
1: I ha- am not involved this year with this study, um, but I'm still at that school doing other work. Okay. And this is also this, but this study as well as other projects have uh, led to an interest of mine now in the teacher attrition uh, problem that we have, the teacher shortage. How do we get teachers to stay in the classroom? And I actually think there can be some there's crossover here of if we can get into a space of more inquiry based, project based learning, that maybe that might help with teacher attrition um, and teachers, just their job satisfaction, their um, their burnout you know when if, if they're not if not everything is relying on the teacher and we can center students in the inquiry process more then that might help to retain the teachers that we have who are um effective teachers um so that's sort of I, i've sort of diverged a little bit into another realm but i think they're all connected of course with um with inquiry-based learning
2: oh yeah that like- yeah, and That's I think it's it empowers teachers. I think our presence empowers teachers, and I don't mean that to be arrogant. It has to do with our stance, and we very much have an engaged scholarship kind of stance when we're working with um, partners with our our K to twelve partners. And so, I think that that kind of supports. I think they feel supported by the work that we're doing, and and they and they agree. They agree with what we're saying <laughs> in terms of. Um, their mm-hmm. positionality and so yes yeah, so we're working on some of that
0: oh yeah i mean this goes back to my whole reason for doing this podcast and working with JAL is because as kind of a you know as, as, a, as a semi-veteran teacher when i started getting into academic jur- 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 journal it gave me such confidence um, to look at what i was doing in the classroom or to change what i was doing in the classroom and having that be backed up with kind of academic Research by people, really smart people, who are doing this in the classroom who have been, already been doing this in their own classrooms. Um, reading this journal, I remember reading that j- journal and getting kind of confirmation that I was um, that that what I was doing was was correct, or if it wasn't correct, knowing that I could, I knew how to do it better because I think the overwhelming majority of teachers, right, like we realize that we can be better at our jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I realize, right, I am in a state of becoming better. I haven't mastered this teaching thing by any stretch. And so, and I want to get better. I think a lot of teachers are, are with me on this. Like we want to get better. And so having you all come alongside them, I'm sure it's very encouraging to have your guys. Well, and,
2: and remember we're not history experts. So right. we kind of, bring. mean <laughs> they bring so much to this conversation because of their knowledge base and right. that discipline that we don't have. So we really position ourselves as thinking partners with them And so that's, that's how we approach developing the lab day lessons. And we might have a suggestion about an idea and then they take it and run with it, or they have a lesson they want to do on Columbus day, for instance, and questioning that. And, um, and we're great with that. So they're bringing in uh, some disciplinary knowledge and we're the folks who've been kind of, Hey, can we think a little bit about how we're supporting writing in this lesson? Mm -hmm. We're We're the literacy people. But yeah. um, anyway, so yeah. yeah, that's been, it's been really fun.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's good, important work. I encourage everyone to take a look at your article because it's very um, relatable and also important. I think an uh, important discussion piece on kind of where we're at right now with new literacies and disparate literacies and digital literacies and what that looks like in, in kind of the applied setting. And I'm going to suppress my own curiosity by asking no more questions. I'm just going to uh, <laughs> thank you Melanie, Leslie, and thank you, Johanna Keane, for spending some time and talking about this.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it.